Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. We're well underway for 2023 now, and this week we're shifting the focus a bit and starting to think about markets. Obviously, it's been a bit uh, bit tough across most of the world, and great to have Matt Dalglish with us today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me, Mark. Uh, pleasure. So you're a commodity market analyst or a business owner there at episode3.net. Uh, you and Andrew Whitelaw have obviously carved out a, a really, I guess, a really great space in helping people understand what's happening across the globe. So I thought today we would, or well, first we'll get your backstory and, and how you and Andrew sort of came about and, and doing what you do, and then we'll get into what, what's happening across the globe. Yeah, it's, it's been a, a really interesting kind of situation for me, particularly uh, because my background wasn't originally agriculture. I was a city boy, uh, if you go back far enough, um, economics graduate uh, and, and did well, the first 12 years or so of my career was trading currency markets. Um, so always had a, always had an interest in in markets of any sort, whether it's equities or metals or commodities or currencies. But um, yeah, that was my background, and we um, we made the move. So I was living in urban Melbourne. I did some time overseas trading currencies, and came back home and was just sick of living in the city. Uh, when I was a young fellow growing up, I did do some time on a dairy farm, just you know poking around in the summer holidays, doing a bit of hay baling and putting the suction cups on the cattle and whatnot. So um that i think they must have given me a love for ag and dairy and and everything kind of animal livestock related from an early age but um yeah it was about over a decade ago now we we decided to head out of the smoke big smoke before all the people that moved from you know the covid what are they called the covid refugees before they kind of took to the country we decided to move to regional vic and um got a little hobby farm out of out of ballarat about 40 acres uh outside of ballarat um and then, yeah, uh, I'd done a spot of teaching as well. I picked up an education degree when I finished uh, currencies and stuff and did a spot of teaching. I was, and I was kicking around Ballarat, regional city, just, you know, trying to figure out how I can get into agriculture. And I saw this job ad come up for a commodity market analyst uh, at a previous firm. And, and that's where I started working. And a month later, Andrew joined that firm. And then about five years in, we, him and I decided we'd branch out and do our own thing. So, um, and th- it's culminated in in the creation of episode three. Yeah, cool. And most people in Valor are just trying to keep warm, but I reckon it's one of the coldest places in the world. The uh, 
but that's not not quite true. But I don't reckon. <laughs> we uh, well, we moved we moved for the cold because I'm uh, Dale Gleish, obviously Scottish heritage. It's a few generations back, but I don't cope very well in the heat, and certainly not in the humidity. So yes, Ballarat's renowned for for its cold weather. Um, but actually, when we were looking, we, we had um, regional Vic was on the card, so Ballarat. Um, Tasmania was another option, also cold, but then New Zealand was one we considered moving to as well and emigrating completely, uh, you know, probably somewhere down south. Also cold. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. Yeah, no, well, yeah, yeah, they were in three coldest places you could have went within a within a four-hour flight anyway. But. Well, I think Canberra was on the agenda too. So this is a, the funny thing. I, I find Ballarat, to, it's a bit to me like a, we could like to call it a Mediterranean climate because you get the hot summers and the dry heat and then you get the cold winters like you'd get in northern Italy or, you know, parts of uh, northern Spain, not not too dissimilar. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, all I know is the shell servo on the Melbourne side of Ballarat, when you're filling up there, you just about just about <laughs> die of hypothermia every time. It's the wind chill. It's the wind chill <laughs> in, the, in the highlands here that, that causes the grief. I think it's not so much the cold. You know, Canberra, Canberra's colder. They get down to minus seven and stuff, but they just don't get that wind chill, I think. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we better get focused. So, yeah, yeah. so obviously uh, episode three now providing providing that advice. What's happening? What's happening? I see you've just reported on the sheep industry or the sheep flock is on the increase in Australia, which is uh, and, and aiming to be the biggest since 2007, is that? That's right, yeah. So we're, we're just nudging towards 80 million head. I think it'll peak in 2024. Just shy of eighty million head, uh, and it's been in, it's been growing for the last couple of years. So we've had with this La Nina kind of wet weather pattern we've had in in, in Australia, particularly, it's it's provided a good opportunity for sheep producers here to rebuild their flock. And we've had now two years of flock growth, and that's going to extend through, according to MLA, or that's Meat and Livestock Australia. So. For your Kiwi listeners, the equivalent of beef and lamb New Zealand, effectively, um, they're, pro- they're projecting uh, the flock to increase uh, again uh, this this coming year, and so yeah, we'll peak at seventy nine and a half million head, and then twenty twenty five they're thinking it might start to decline, which is which is probably not 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 a it's a fair assessment I think um, given given the normal pattern of um, of rainfall here in Australia, we're probably not too far away now after three years of of wet weather, we're probably you know, heading towards a drought anytime soon. Fairly well on the cards, I'd imagine. Yeah. So yeah. And we were saying just before we we went uh, started recording that New Zealand flocks edging up as well, which is interesting considering most of us think it's going down with all the farms converting to trees up north. Yeah. Look, it's only marginal. I think I, I had a look at the key, the numbers for New Zealand uh, just today as well, just to have a look and see how their place because the last time I checked. Last year, I think you saw a 0.2% fall to your flock, and now you've switched around to a 0.2% increase for the 2022-23 financial year. Um, and, and, and that's coincided as well. If you look back the last few years, I think you've been growing your beef herd and your dairy herd, um, and that they've both now turned around, gone negative by, I think, 08 and 0.9%. So a slight adjustment. But, I mean, when you look at the overall figures, though, when, you, when you're less than a percentage change either way, it's, it's almost like a status quo year, really. It's, it's no change largely, I think. Uh, but, um, yeah, but we, look, the Australian, from the Australian perspective, we've been fortunate to have this good season. And if you look uh, to the export side, um, New Zealand's our biggest competitor in that export space and you know, with you guys more focused on dairy and, and beef and increasingly forestry um 
you know, it's giving us an opportunity to get take advantage of some of this growth we're seeing in uh, export demand for sheep meat. Yeah, well, it's uh, luckily we have equal representation of clients across both countries, so we hedge our bets a bit. But the um, interesting, I don't know whether the, like the free trade change into India, is that going to see a lot more Australian product get into there? Is that going to have any impact on, on the markets next few years or is that those tariffs not been restrictive? I think it will, but it's one of those things, you know, the, the, the ink's kind of still drying. I think there's still some some items to thrash out in terms of protocol and whatnot. So often, you know, once you get the free trade agreement agreed to in, in, in principle, it, it does take a couple of years at least before the flows start to, to start to kind of show. So I, I think for the Australian context, it's a, it's a fabulous opportunity given, you know, the growth in population in India, the growth in wealth in that population you know, they're kind of like another China to a degree in terms of, you know, how, how much product we could potentially send there. Um, yeah, so, so I think it's a fantastic opportunity, but I can't expect we're going to see big volumes heading there. You know, maybe, maybe it'll start to ramp up in the middle of the decade, but um, it's certainly one to keep an eye on. Um, you know, we've, we've been pretty fortunate in the last few years. We've had the, the, the free trade deal with in, uh, Indonesia as well, which not so much for sheep meat but for beef. And obviously, we've got you know the UK one, and we're working towards this EU one as well. Which um, I think, if they all come to fruition, we won't have enough product, neither New Zealand or Australia, to satisfy them all. Sounds like a good problem to have. And yeah, I guess India being a market, obviously a lot of vegetarians in India, but also a lot of mutton. A lot of people with with Hindu population having cows sacred. The uh, there's a lot of mutton eaters, so yeah, it could be a massive, massive opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I know this is a, a sheep podcasts particularly but but people say that with, with it being a, a high proportion of vegetarians and hindus that don't eat beef but the, i think the population the christian population of india is about 32 million so and they eat beef um so that's that's bigger than australia yeah it's bigger than new zealand so so that, so there's i mean not that we're sending beef there but it's a it's nothing to sneeze at to, to have a market of 30 million or so that are chasing your product yeah and there's yeah, hundreds of millions of, of mutton eaters, so or mutton and goat, which is indistinguishable in the market over there. But yeah, so it's yeah, no, I think it's it's a great opportunity, and looking forward to uh, seeing a bit of a shift. What is what is going on at the moment in the lamb and mutton market? She's pretty a bit different, I suppose, compared to the last three or four years in terms of price. Yeah, I guess that if you look back over the last say two years, the big uh, noticeable change for, from an Australian perspective has been the increasing appetite from uh, North America, for, for particularly for lamb. So if you look at Australian exports, you know, as an average across, say, the last five years or so, 2021 was about 25% above the five-year trend in terms of volumes and 2022 was, was equally as strong, you know, around that 24 25% um, of, of, of flows above the average. Um, so we've had two really strong years from the U.S., um, it started to peter off at the end of last year. Just, I think there's a few recessionary fears facing the US, and and you know, lamb's a product that is particularly consumed in the US. It's it's about sixty percent of what we send goes into the food service sector, so they do get a bit disrupted by um, economic downturn. So that that's taken some of the heat out of that market, but it's only just gone back to the average. It hasn't gone below average. Um, and the other one, just towards the end of last year, we saw. Um, mutton flows to China from Australia, they kind of started to ease, ease up at the last quarter. Um, normally you see, you know, the demand increasing towards the end of the year for China as they get ready for their Lunar New Year. Um, but that kind of started to 
tail away. And I think what it was there was just the, the zero COVID policy they had been pursuing. Now they've stopped. Um, that was having a bit of an impact. But um, since they've now changed focus, they're, they're now letting you know tourists back in and opening the borders and, and opening up parts of the country and not locking down. Uh, we saw a big jump to the January exports for mutton from Australia to China. I think it's the, the strongest opening we've had on record in terms of volumes, 28%, I think, above the five-year trend for, for Jan. So that, yeah, that could be that. I mean, it bodes well for the rest of the year if, if, if they're back firing because um, Australia sends about 40% of our exports of mutton product goes to China. So it's a huge market for us for mutton. Yeah, and I guess um, not sure about over that side of the ditch, but this side of the ditch, kill space, and there's a lot of things sort of playing on on the ability to to move stuff and therefore prices and user at probably all time low really um new prices so it's a yeah it's certainly not not easy out there on farm this this summer particularly when you're trying to get stuff off farm because you you don't need any extra mouths this summer year you know we and we saw the same in australia with the 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 you price or the you know the sheep pricing towards the back end of the year start to fall away lamb held up pretty well but but sheep pricing certainly did and i think part of that was that that falling demand out of China, but with the rebound in exports that I just spoke about for January, we have seen mutton pricing in Australia pick up in the last few weeks. It's jumped nearly nearly a dollar, I think, uh, in terms of cents per kilo carcass weight. So um, that's that's that shows how important the export sector is to us. But um, you mentioned just just briefly there around kill space, and that's probably I guess the the most concerning factor I think facing not just the sheep sector in Australia, but the broader livestock sector. Is just um, access to to skilled labour in that in that abattoir space because we're you know we're starting to see some level of improvement there. Um, if you compare it to you know what was going on middle of last year, it got particularly tight through the middle of the season. Um, you know some some processes back then were, were saying that they're struggling to get past sixty percent capacity, and that was all just due to labour constraints. Um, they're probably averaging now somewhere between seventy five to eighty percent capacity, but again. There is a bit of a worry um, of a bottleneck of labour, and, and as we we've been rebuilding the herd, rebuilding the flock, um, you know projections of slaughters obviously going up from those MLA forecasts we spoke about at the outset. Um, you know, so we're going to have a fair few uh, kind of animals, whether it's beef or, or sheep meat, to process in the next few years, and we really need to make sure we've got those labour issues sorted out to be able to get through them all. Yeah, for sure. And we were talking just pre pre recording around that you're seeing that. Wherever you talk to, that's a similar problem. Labourers, whether it's getting your lambs tarred or getting them getting them sent through and processed, it's labour's a, a massive component of of what of sheep population shift. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, whether it's you know shearing and crutching or, or general farm hand stuff, if, and and through the whole agricultural supply chain. So even even you could say to a degree, you know, transport operators that are that are, you know, we rely upon to get product around the place, whether it's whether it's inputs coming into the farm or or product going out, um, it's been tight across the board, I think. Um, and and we've yeah, we we along alongside episode three, Don yet, Andrew and I run a, a podcast called Ag Watchers. And and as part of that we've been focusing on a series, you know, talking to sheep producers around the globe. Uh, and or everyone we've spoken to so far. So we've had a, a New Zealander Someone from North, well, both America and Canada, and and someone from the UK and England, uh, and they've all mentioned their biggest kind of you know concern and hassle for themselves at the moment has been all around labour and 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 worries around getting access to to labour on site. 
quick interruption here to remind you of Head Shepherd Premium and our consulting services at NextGen Agri International. If you love this podcast and want to hear more of them, visit thehub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for Head Shepherd Premium and get an extra podcast each week. If you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximise the genetic gain of your livestock and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm, then send me an email at mark at nextgenagri.com and we'll get in touch and see, see where that takes us. Yeah, no, it's yeah, we we hear it and see it everywhere. And I should have mentioned Ag Watchers in the in the intro. We'll definitely have that link in the in the show notes. So yeah, podcast that you two uh, put out, and as the most recent one's got a quite an interesting song at the start of it. <laughs> well, yeah. you might want to you might want to warn your listeners that it's no nowhere near as as um, professional as, as as the Head Shepherd podcast. That's for sure. Uh, we have we get off target a bit, so yeah, but. Um, yeah, no, it's yeah, great to great to be chatting to a fellow podcaster. It's um, it's sometimes a lonely space, staring into a microphone and, and yarning away. But um, yeah, I'm sure you enjoy it as much as I do. The conversations you get to have, it is, and that I mean that's part of the reason why Andrew and I like, obviously we do the analysis work uh, and the number crunching as the day job. Um, but we also get access to a lot of really interesting people across you know a broad spectrum of people across agriculture uh, and the supply chain. So. You know, we, we kind of spoke about it a while and said, look, we have these chats with people off, off camera or off mic that are really interesting and you get to pick people's brains that are experts in their field and, and we just thought, you know, why should it just be limited to us? We, you know, and that's why we did the podcast. So we'll just, we'll just have these chats with people uh, and ask the questions that we want to ask and go down little rabbit holes uh, in their expertise. Um, and, it, yeah, we found that it's, I mean, even though, like I said, it's, it's pretty much an amateur one, a hobby podcast, but... It has struck a bit of a chord, I think, with um, with people that are interested in agriculture and interested in commodity markets. Um, and so, yeah, we, we we're lucky that we've got a reasonably good um, subscriber base, and um, and people seem to like it. So um, we'll just keep doing it while they while they keep wanting it. Excellent. I think uh, yeah, I think we're fortunate to be in a sector where a lot of our potential listeners are stuck in a tractor or behind a mob of sheep and actually have a bit of time where they can shove something in their ear and listen for a while so we yeah harvest 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 is always we, we notice that the numbers of downloads uh, go up over harvest particularly it's uh, not something that i've had to endure sitting in the cab for that long but um i'm sure uh, i'm sure it probably makes some people happy to be able to have a bit, a bit of a laugh and also a bit of a listen and 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 maybe learn a few things as you go that's that's kind of what we're trying to achieve there a light-hearted look at, at data and commodities and markets yeah, no, fantastic. What's happening in the in the beef game? Obviously, it's I don't know if there's ever been a time this good for this long for beef, but is it is it holding up there, or are we seeing any softening there? Uh, it, look, it has been again, you know, similar to the same picture with 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 sheep, sheep uh, in Australia. We've had such good seasons that you couldn't help but not kind of grow the herd. Um, in terms of pricing, we we have seen a, a little bit of uh, softening in pricing since the start of this year. Uh, but it, but again, it's coming off some pretty record levels from the last few years. So so even though it's a, you know, a softening, it's you know, if you compare the pricing back to five years ago, where you know the average producer is still looking pretty good. Um, and 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 it probably you know if, if you also look to the global picture, which is a lot more, I guess, a more competitive space than the sheep meat space. Um, there's a there's a lot more kind of tough competitors in that position. And and for a few you know, at least a year and a half, Australia had. Probably the most expensive, you know, beef compared to our our competitor nations, um, and and that's that, that's kind of reversed now with with, with the with the re- reduction in pricing 
that we've seen in, in Australia and, and the US obviously in a, in a totally opposite phase where they're in their third year of liquidation, they're now starting to see their pricing for beef product increase you know, as the supply starts to dwindle away. Um, so, so it's kind of pushed us back to a discount, which means that with a bit of luck as we grow this herd, um, we'll, we'll get a bit more, regain some access back and market share back to some of the countries that we lost a little bit of traction like China and, and, and whatnot. Was, we, and we start to get out-competed a little bit in China. Um, and so that, you know, that, that might give us an opportunity to try and claw back some, um, some, some kind of market share there. Yeah, interesting. The, I guess for last, I don't know, 10 years, we've been on the breeding side and the feeding side sort of looking into eating quality and, and that sort of stuff. Are you, what, what trends are you seeing, I suppose, across the markets as to what consumer preference is it? I mean, carbon's on the table and, and eating quality and environmental footprint and all the rest of it is what's are you seeing any major consumer trends other than that might change what we should be producing? Absolutely, I think, and and from the perspective of the New Zealand and and Australian producer, I think we're in a pretty good position to 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 kind of take advantage of some of those trends, right? And one of the and because we because we are both nations that still have a fair degree of grass finished animals. Uh, and we have obviously a, a big footprint in the sheep meat side, which, which if you, you know, if you compare the the, the general held view of um, the sustainability of livestock in red meat, beef tends to get the get the negative press, and, and sheep meat and goat tends to you know have the, I guess the the feeling amongst the consumer that we've got a lighter footprint from an environmental perspective, which is probably true. Um, but yeah, I think I think just because we've got such a a, a huge focus in that. Uh, I guess nowadays it's called regenerative ag or that sustainable type model rather than you know the US kind of model of those massive feedlots that that don't always have the you know don't always have the the same environmental credentials as a grass finished product you know so so and, and that's I think that's one of the big growing trends in the in the developed world certainly if you look to parts of um, Europe and, and the UK and and the and to North America those higher higher value type markets. There, there, there is, I think, a, a growing group of people there that are wanting to buy red meat products that are that have a sustainability story attached to them, and I, and so I think we're seeing a, a developing second premium market for, for for beef and sheep meat, you know, product that that can have that environmental credential attached to it, which I think is a really interesting development. I, I don't think that's going to take away from the fact that they're still. You know, at least in the beef space, there is still a premium uh, market for for grain fed, grain finished product into like Japan and South Korea, and increasingly in China. And so, the way I see it going actually into the future, Mark, is that that I really think there's 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 becoming two premium type products. You know, there is that premium that has the environmental credentials, and then there's the premium when you talk about the intramuscular fat type. You know, the Wagyu style product or you know that they're always going to be there as well as a as another premium, but I think uh, yeah, countries like Australia and New Zealand are prime prime position to take advantage of both of those markets. I think, um, and I mean, in New Zealand, I think you guys are doing some great job with the Amiga. There's, I think there's a couple of producers there that do an high Amiga lamb product. They've changed their mind. It was tomato That's lamb. It. It's now it's now got another name, which will come to me in a minute. But yeah, the headwaters group of uh, yeah, breeding and feeding to to produce high omega-3s and then there's Solaire, which is a merino product, which is higher IMF. So, yeah, there's a couple of differentiated products which have both hopefully been through the 
the horrible valley of death of startups and sort of coming through the coming through as sort of a product that that's got good acceptance in the market and uh lumina lumina is the name i'm looking for so yeah Tamana's now Lumina Lamb and yeah, doing a great job in the market. Yeah, and I think we, we've seen there's a producer here in Australia, uh, Pro Pro Breed or Pro Lamb, I think they're called Tom Bull. Yeah, Lamb that's Pro. Yeah. New, yeah, Lamb Pro. That's him. Yeah, New South Wales producer, and he's he's getting a similar, you know, in terms of at least the intramuscular fat, um, he's getting similar type outcomes. I think your your um, Lumina product is 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 a much finer level of intramuscular. I think the the, the stuff that Tom Bull's producing look, almost looks like Wagyu. Uh, you can really see the visibly see it, whereas um, the omega, the high omega uh, fats within that product, I think, is another different premium product. But I think they're all they're all got a space in this market, and and you know, you're seeing a lot in the developed world. Is it has been a trend for lower volume of of consumption of red meat, but I think for some areas lower volume but a higher value. People are, are prepared to pay, eat a bit less, but pay for, for really proper premium stuff that they that they get the right kind of eating enjoyment from it, and that they also might tick a few boxes when it comes to um, you know what type of product they want to consume from an environmental standpoint or, or a reduced carbon footprint standpoint. Um, you know, and, and I think that. That whether it's organic or, or these other premium products, I think that that's the trend that's not going to go away in certain segments. Um, so yeah, like I said, a, a great opportunity for for the producer, whether it's a, in New Zealand or Australia, to take advantage of. Yeah, and I think obviously you ignore the ignore the consumer at your peril. That's uh, that's pretty number one in business, and yeah, I think we we are seeing that, that shift, and a lot of people moving or trying to shift their breeding and their production systems towards that. One thing that you don't have that much of in australia but plenty over here is sort of strong wool stuff that's north of 30 micron have you got any any words of hope for that for that market it's uh well i think the coarse wool producer in australia is in a similar situation the pricing there's been you know pretty subdued for a number of years and and covid certainly didn't help yeah look i think there's not a there's not a great immediate outlook i don't think i'm sorry to say i can't you know, sometimes you, you like to focus on the positives, but as an, the analyst in me um, looks at it and says, I think there's maybe a couple more years worth of um, of tough trading conditions. You know, until we see a reasonable kind of improvement to the to the economies across the globe. I think yeah, the US is still looking at a recessionary phase in 2023. I think China is still grappling, even though they've changed their their focus. I think they're still grappling economically, and there's probably going to be another year before the Chinese economy. Gets itself back up properly, um, and, and I think you know parts of Europe. I think still you know we're all kind of facing this high inflation, high cost of living, uh, you know supply shock type side of, of the economy, which which doesn't lend itself to uh, high consumer confidence, and and so some of those discretionary type spends that the wool market takes advantage of, I think, are going to be under a bit of pressure at least for the next year. And and so, yeah, I, I don't think there's going to be a big, you know, kind of surge in the demand for cause of wool until we see a reasonable rebound. The only thing the only thing I could think that, that might change the focus there is if we get some innovative products potentially that might start using that. You know, I did hear of, uh, obviously in Australia, I think in New Zealand you probably have a similar thing where you've got the, the wool insulation Type product that that's a good good kind of environmental product to use um, in construction. Uh, but one of the um, one of the uh, people we spoke to on the AgWatchers podcast from Canada is looking at 
palletizing coarse wool and using it in um, horticulture as a a, a a water retainer within within. So I don't know I don't know how how kind of large scale that production would be, but that's the kind of innovation I, I suppose if 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 it was a product that could be used in a totally different way and it and it and it takes off globally that's the type of thing the industry needs to um to maybe rescue it from the doldrums yeah yeah and i think it well i guess it's got to get ideally in products that are going in people's homes where they're willing to pay a bit more but yeah it's it's going to be a tough road i think obviously one of the things that's changing it is the supply is changing i don't know whether you're tracking breed change but obviously the shedding sheep market has has been exploding and for the last few years probably maybe Maybe that growth has slowed a bit recently, but definitely been a, a big shift towards shedding sheep, which I guess if that continues, it'll take a bit of supply out of the market. Yeah, you'll have, I mean, that's, that, that, that's the old adage that, that price sends the signal to the, to the you know, supplier as to what you've got to do. And, and you know, a couple of years more worth of low pricing will definitely make people reconsider and, and, and adjust potentially their, their enterprise mix. Um, and then that uh, then that can help solve some of the price factor. But those types of adjustments, like we said, they take they can take a few years to to flow through before you start to see, you know, that price kind of leading the industry where where it should be going. Yeah, and I guess where I guess it really is the labour thing that's keeping people a little bit a little bit subdued at the moment. With uh, and I think yeah, the processing sector must be. I mean, there's already robots involved, obviously, but it's got to be prime. It, prime candidate for disruption where we take a few humans out of that process because it's it's not getting any easier to process yeah that's 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 actually a question i got for you to turn the tables slightly mark is because on within the processing sector within australia if you look at that robotic the increase of robotics in that early stage of of, of doing the 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 first carcass cuts i think it's about 22 or 23 percent of of sheep meat abattoirs now have robotics in in the system and about Oh, it's about nine percent of beef abattoirs, but what's do you know what the take up is in is in New Zealand? Is it is it or equally are they are those robot systems starting to take away the the labour in that early phase of the of the abattoir processing? I should know the answer to that, but I don't. But I know that Scott Scientific are obviously been innovating in that area for a long time. But yeah, no, I don't know the proportion and haven't actually done it. I've only been in a small number of abattoirs here, so yeah, not sure about that uptake. But I think yeah, I think it's. It's only a matter of time until that keeps continuing. Uh, yeah, pretty cool to pretty cool to see what you can get a robot to do, and we're going to get yeah. better, better on that front. Well, the the I mean, the, there's the the labour aspect. Obviously, is the obvious one, but but also the accuracy of the cut and the and the reduction in wastage. Particularly, I, I don't know if they're doing the same in New Zealand as well, where you combine in the robotics with the dual X-ray scanning of the carcass. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, so then they can make these. You know, millimeter precision cuts and and reduce wastage significantly as well. So and, and deliver a a better finished product, right? So yeah, there's there's a whole range of reasons why I think that's going to continue to 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 kind of capture the attention of the processing sector. You know, if any part of the supply chain needs to make sure they're absolutely you know counting nickels and dimes, it's the processors. Yeah, and I guess robots don't get tired and they don't <laughs> don't cut each other's fingers off or whatever. So there's yeah, there's plenty of Plenty of reasons why that will that will be a, an important step of some some stage in the future as computing and robotics and everything gets cheaper and cheaper and yeah, which are definitely looking forward to. I guess we're in a sector that tends not to get a lot of investment because we on global scale we're not that big. 
our animal health companies would rather develop something for a cat or a dog or, or a human than, than a drench for a sheep and the same in, in robotics and development. So we, there's, um, there's big money. Well, I think they call it companion animals. There's, there's big money in the companion animal market. Massive money and you only don't have to go too far from where I'm sitting to see some money being spent on, on companion animals. So, yeah, <laughs> for sure. But Anyway, mate, that's, um, that's been a great chat and, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Definitely uh, recommend the Ag Watchers podcast to all our listeners and get on there and, and listen to Matt and Andrew have a, have a yarn and, and talk to some interesting people. And obviously episode3.net has going, been going a year or two or obviously came out of Thomas Elder Market. And what sort of, what's your normal, who are you normally dealing with? Who's, who's looking for information? Yeah, it's it's pretty widespread. So, I mean, we obviously we focus on all the broad acre commodities and inputs and and you know things like labour and and some other economic kind of factors that we think influence commodity pricing or, or that might be of interest to the ag space or or even the food service space uh, or food manufacturing space, I should say. Um, but our, our client base can range from you know the, the big corporate farms, um, overseas investors and, and direct investors within Australia that are looking to build their agricultural assets. Um, we do a lot in the uh, lot for the state farming organisations around the country, and also the national organisations. You know that are that are kind of your RDCs and all those kind of groups that need from time to time uh, assistance with data analysis, report writing. Um, so, so we, yeah, we've got a fairly widespread of clientele on the on the both, I guess, the producer side of the equation, but then also uh, we consult in terms of risk management and strategy to consumers of ag products so so um you know we could be talking wheat to uh, you know a a, um, a large fund that's, that's that's got multiple operations within parts of the country but then we could also be talking to pig producers or intensive uh, kind of farmers that are you know consumers of wheat product or flour mills or or, or you know food manufacturers that are making uh, pizza bases you know they've got exposures to canola and and flour and and wheat and all those other Products, so so it's a pretty widespread market we we speak to, and and that that means that you know we're always looking at something new and different, um, and they're they're all global markets, so you know there's never it's never a dull day in the office, which keeps us on our toes. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Keep it up, and uh, yeah, we wish you all the best. And yeah, anyone interested, there's uh, newsletters and stuff you can sign up at episode three dot net. And uh, thanks for the chat. Well, uh, yeah. Enjoy your balmy, balmy Ballarat, and I'll enjoy my balmy Christchurch. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for coming on, mate. Really appreciate that. Okay, no, thanks for having me, Mark. It's been great. Always good to chat uh, ag with uh, with someone that knows what they're talking about. Cheers. Thanks again to our mates at Heinegger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply, professional sheep shearing, and clipping equipment. They understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd podcast.